Our text this morning comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this word, a word of renewal, a word of recommissioning. So, Father, we pray that we would hear it as such in our own lives today, that he would, we would hear again your call to speak for you. And, Father, as we witness true repentance, may we, too, learn to repent and live lives of repentance. And Father, as we see your hand of mercy, may we know and experience and rejoice in your mercy. For you are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You may be seated. Let's try again. Now that we have a new Jonah, a born-again Jonah, a Jonah who went down to Sheol under God's judgment, but was raised up by God's mercy, let's begin again. And because you too know what it is to disobey God, to run away from the presence of the Lord, take heart as we begin again, realizing that your sin cannot overcome God's purpose for you because of the life-changing power of God's mercy. If you think of God as a strict judge, if you think that new obedience earns mercy from that God, or if you're tempted to think that you've screwed up so badly that God has no more use for you, then listen carefully, because Jonah 3 is full of good news. Jonah's second chance 
demonstrates that God is merciful. That mercy leads to obedience, not the other way around. And that even though you're a sinner, God can still use you to spread his message of mercy. In Jonah 3, we also see a very clear picture of what true repentance looks like. Jonah 3 shows us a God who graciously forgives sinners who hear his word and repent of their evil ways. We also learn that God does this not in an unpredictable or fickle way, but in a way that perfectly expresses his eternal character according to his word of promise. While the literary structure and the artistry in Jonah chapter 3 is quite complex, the message of Jonah 3 is very simple. God calls. Jonah obeys. Nineveh repents. God has mercy. So let's look carefully at the text. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. We've heard those words before. Jonah has heard those words before. Last time, Jonah rose to flee. This time, Jonah rises to obey. Verse 3 is describing Nineveh as an exceedingly great city, a large city, a three days worth of city, city. And it seems that this size, this magnitude, this role that Nineveh is playing means that God is not going to give up on his plan to get this word of warning to Nineveh. And more than that, he's not going to give up on his chosen messenger to get this warning to this great city. Nineveh is so great that it's important to God. And so this message to Jonah for Nineveh comes once again. And so at least in his actions although maybe not in his heart. We'll see more of that in chapter 4. But at least in his actions, Jonah is now ready to obey God. He's learned the lesson of the whale. You cannot run from the presence of the Lord. And so now he rises and goes to deliver this message. And when he finally starts to deliver his prophetic oracle that he's been given for Nineveh, what Jonah preaches is very different than the other prophetic messages that we see in Scripture. This one is stripped down to the bare essentials. Forty days left until Nineveh is overturned. That's it. That's the whole message. That's all we have recorded. We don't know if that's just the summary or if that is indeed all that Jonah spoke. But the emphasis is on the simplicity. This is a short and sweet word of warning that Jonah delivers. And what this message does through its simplicity, through its brevity, is shift the focus from the speaker to the message. And it might very well be the case that the speaker has drawn the attention. You would probably not look and smell normal if you had spent three days in the stomach juices of a whale. But when this message comes, it's the message that grabs the attention of the people. Jonah's message was a a word of coming judgment, a warning of what God was about to do. But interestingly, in this word of warning or judgment, uh, this key word is somewhat ambiguous. Nineveh will be 
overturned, overthrown. And you might hear overtones of destruction and judgment in that, and you wouldn't be wrong. But you might also hear a note of changed or made different somehow, without a necessary meaning of destruction and, and overcoming. And it doesn't seem that Jonah is fully aware that his message might have this ambiguity. For Jonah, God is preparing to smash Nineveh. And so he's willing to deliver that message to Nineveh. So while his new obedience might seem to show a changed heart, it might be the case that Jonah is reasoning that if God barely spares the life of his own rebellious prophet, when his prophet rebels against his word, then what's going to happen to Nineveh when Nineveh rebels against God's word? Because, of course, Nineveh is going to rebel against God's word, right? This evil, wicked empire. And so it must have been fascinating to hear how Jonah delivers this message. We might hear it in our heads the way we think uh, of a prophet thundering forth the word of God. A mighty denunciation, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it may have been the case that that's how it was delivered. But I think we can also imagine Jonah, the rebellious, grumpy prophet, wandering around the city sort of mumbling. Yeah, 40 days. <laughs> Nineveh will be overthrown. Kind of hoping a little bit that nobody pays attention. This isn't the message he wanted to deliver. He's learned obedience, but his heart is not in it. But it's the word of the Lord. It's not Jonah's message. And so the power of the Lord through his word has an amazing effect on Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believe God and they put their faith in his word. And as a result, they immediately crumble in heartfelt repentance. There's no resistance. There's no questioning. There's no talking back. There's simply repentance. They begin fasting. They put on sackcloth. They're signifying mourning and humiliation from the greatest of them to the least of them. And many people point to this, rather than the story of the whale, as the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. An entire city repents at the word of the Lord. We're tempted to roll right past that because it's a Bible story. We've heard it before. We've read it before. But when you think about it, have you ever seen that? Can you even imagine that? An entire city repenting as a city, not simply an individual here, a family there, but a whole city coming to repent at the word of the Lord, changing their lives, changing their behavior. An entire city made new through the preaching of God's word. Do you even believe that that could happen? Jonah, it seems, has a notion that it might have. We'll find out more in, in chapter 4. Jonah has been worried uh, that it might have happened. But maybe the reason why we have trouble understanding Jonah's initial rebellion, why wouldn't Jonah obey God? Well, maybe the reason we have trouble understanding it is not because we love mercy. 
We enjoy mercy. We're, we're big mercy people. Jonah wasn't, and that was his problem. But maybe the reason why is not because we're so much better acquainted with mercy than Jonah was, but because we don't expect or even imagine that God might show that sort of mass mercy to a bunch of people that we don't like very much. Theoretical mercy is wonderful. We're, we're much in favor of that. God, in our experience, tends to deliver uh, little doses of mercy that are manageable. A person here, a person there. That much mercy we can, we can make our peace with. But an entire city of wicked, bloodthirsty people who have been oppressing our people for generations, and they get mercy from God? It's easy for us to love mercy in the abstract when we don't really believe that God might be about to overturn and save Beijing or Moscow or Kerry. When this word from Jonah makes it to the king, the greatest of them takes his cue from the least of them, and he personally humiliates himself before God. The repenting has already started before it gets to the king. And that's an indicator that this repentance is genuine. The people are not repenting because the king told them they have to. Their repenting starts before the king even hears about it. They're going to repent whether the king gets on board or not. But the king does. The king likewise believes God. And so he steps off of the throne. How, how symbolic is that act? He takes off his royal robes and puts on sackcloth. He goes and sits in the ashes. He's saying through his actions, I don't deserve to be king. I deserve to die. And I will wear the clothes of death. I will sit in the ashes of death. That's where I belong. This is a humbled, repenting ruler. And not only that, but then he issues a proclamation that sets out the official response of Nineveh as a city to God's word of warning. Food and drink are forbidden. The only thing any Ninevite, even the animals, ought to be doing is repenting. That, not eating and drinking, that's what your mouth is for. Cry out to God. At the heart of this repentance is more than just a fear of judgment. There's an ethical change that happens. The people start to live differently. They turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. And it's taken one day, not 40. And Nineveh is overthrown. Nineveh is overturned. Nineveh has been changed. And their full and complete repentance, I think, gives us a powerful, powerful model for what true repentance looks like. First, we see that it's motivated by faith in the word of God. This is not repentance under threat from the king. This is not repentance merely because we're terrified of judgment. This is repentance that believes the word of God. Well, second, it's a public and outwardly visible repentance. This isn't simply a feeling or emotion that changes inside the hearts of people that doesn't manifest in any outward actions. No, sackcloth and ashes are everywhere, not only on the people, but on the animals. 
to say, yes, we agree, God, we deserve to die. This judgment that you've warned us of, it's right, it's correct, it's true, we should die. And so we'll go ahead and put death on ourselves to show that we agree with you, God. Well, third, they call out mightily to God. They lift up their voices. They plead with God for mercy, expressing sorrow and asking that his judgment be taken away. And fourth, as I said, their lives change. They stop doing wickedness and violence. And that's what repentance looks like. That's what repentance involves. Real repentance means more than saying you're sorry. That's a good start. But it means overturning your whole life in response to the word of God. So have you repented yet? Martin Luther famously said, the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. There's not merely one moment of initial repentance. Yes, I repented that one time right when I was becoming a Christian, and that took care of it. No, the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. And feeling bad and apologizing are good places to start. But that's not enough. And so, Christian, you can be a Christian and yet lack peace with God because you've not brought your repentance to completion. You've just started the process. But half-hearted repentance doesn't restore peace with God. You need to include everything and everyone in your repentance. The example of, of Nineveh shows us that you, you need to use your voice. You need to rethink your relationships. You need to change your wardrobe. You need to act differently. And apparently you even need to include your pets in your repentance. The animals of Nineveh were clothed in sackcloth and ashes to show that this was a complete and full repentance. And a repentance that takes sin this seriously shows that you believe God, that his word is true, that his judgment is coming. And I think verse 9 is remarkable because it reveals that the Ninevites aren't simply attempting to manipulate God through religious ritual. They don't think that it's the case that if we do these certain ritual actions, that then we put in our quarter and push the button, and mercy comes out the slot. That's not how they think of mercy at all. They don't even know if any mercy is coming. They just know that what they've done is wicked and wrong and must be repented of. And so their repentance is not a transaction that they think will obligate God to show mercy. It's a heart-stricken acknowledgement of their wickedness of their culture of violence and evil. And so perhaps, they say, maybe if we repent, God might show mercy. Their hope rests on this maybe mercy. They know that repentance by itself doesn't merit mercy. They can't come to God and say, well, we did our repenting thing. You must do your forgiving thing, right? Have you encountered that in our culture? The people tend to think of it that way. I do the sinning. That's my job. God does the forgiving. That's God's job. That's just what God has to do. Is it? The Ninevites realize that, no, 
It's not. Our repentance does not require God to forgive us. We cannot earn or manipulate the mercy of God. Now, Jonah knows that God is a merciful God who promises to have mercy on his covenant people. Jonah knows that, but Nineveh doesn't know that about God. And they don't have God's covenant promises. They're not God's covenant people. And yet even the cows of Nineveh are better at repenting than Jonah is. Nineveh believes God and repents, humbling itself before the mercy of God. But in all this repentance, I want to flag something for you. As this repenting is happening, we see many, many rituals of repentance, actions of repentance. But what big and obvious thing is missing from this repentance? If you were Jonah, what would you be expecting as a necessary part, a key part, of being made right with God? If you were an Israelite at this moment, what would you be bringing before God? In all of this repenting, there's no blood. There's no sacrifice. There's no judgment. There's no death. Symbolic death, yes, in the sackcloth and ashes, but no storm, no fire from heaven, no blood. Nineveh's repented for their sin, yes, but have they paid for it? In their violence, they've shed an awful lot of innocent blood. So are they going to get away without having their blood shed? Is that justice? Maybe that's part of Jonah's problem. Because what happens next is stunning. God sees the Ninevites humbling themselves and how they've turned from their evil ways. And God relented of the evil that he said he was going to bring against Nineveh. Nineveh turned, and so God turned. They stopped doing evil, and so God did not bring upon them the evil that he had told them that he would do. Nineveh was not destroyed. God had mercy on them. And every sinner in this room should be shocked and stunned and overjoyed that this is our God, a God of mercy, a God who does not destroy sinners, a God who responds to repentance and love and grace. The same mercy that God showed Nineveh is the same mercy at work today because God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're not just hearing a story about long ago. You're seeing God in his merciful character at work. And what God did for them is what God is prepared to do for you and to do today. And that should take your breath away. You've done evil. You've sinned. And a holy, righteous, pure, and perfect God hasn't destroyed you yet? How is that possible. How can that make sense? You've done evil, and where are you right this moment? But in the presence of God, coming to worship before him.
God's fierce anger was aimed right at you for good reason. And someone stood in the way and took your place so that you can be here in fellowship with God so that you might not perish but have life. The mercy of God means salvation for you. Thanks be to God. And so in one sense, it should seem a little bit impertinent to ask the next question, but we need to because the word brings it up. The word drives us to it. In Numbers 22 through 24, we have that story of King Balak of Moab who wants to curse God's people, and so he hires God's prophet to deliver that curse. And unfortunately for him, it backfires. Uh, the word that God sends through his prophet is a word of blessing on Israel. And so King Balak tries to get it changed. No, no, that's not at all what I meant. Let's, let's try this again. I want you to curse them. Only to have Balaam the prophet respond to him in these words. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God's glory is seen that his word comes true. His prophecies are fulfilled. He doesn't go back on his word. That's what makes God God. He's not like you. So what then do we make of Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, where it seems like by relenting, by not doing what God said God would do, that God is doing in Jonah exactly what God said in Numbers that he would not do. God relents. How do we make sense of that? It's a hard issue to deal with in the Bible. It doesn't just show up here in Jonah. There's multiple places where we face this mystery. And I do think there is an element of mystery about it because we're not God. We struggle to understand it. And I can't fully explain it, but today I want to take us to Jeremiah 18, which it doesn't have all the answers, but I think it shows us, uh, points us in the right direction to understanding a relenting God who is nevertheless completely faithful to his word. So listen as I read uh, from Jeremiah chapter 18. Beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. That's Jeremiah 18, uh, 1 through 10. And as you heard, it's talking about the exact scenario that we have 
in Jonah chapter 3, a kingdom of which God has said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And yet God relents and doesn't bring disaster. And so we can't ignore numbers. We can't ignore that God speaks and does not turn back. God does not break his word. But we can't ignore Jonah either, where it seems that God does that. And I think Jeremiah shows us how to put it together. God does not relent like a man. And that phrasing shows up in, in Numbers as well as in uh, Jeremiah. And I think that's the, the key. God doesn't relent like a human being on the basis of new information or because he's learned more about what good and evil are. That's not what moves God to change or to relent. God does not go back on his word. That's what Numbers is saying. But in other words, man relents by changing himself, changing his mind. His knowledge has changed and his actions change. But God relents not because God has changed. God relents because man has changed, because the situation that God is dealing with has changed. God's eternal disposition towards sin and sinners remains eternally the same. God has judgment and wrath against sin and sinners. But God's judgment towards the repentant is also eternally the same. God always has mercy for those who repent. And so Nineveh has changed. Nineveh has gone from hardened sinners to humble repenters. And so God doesn't change who God is. God's actions change because Nineveh has changed. There's a new Nineveh. The old Nineveh that was under threat of destruction is gone. The new Nineveh that is repentant and humble is a Nineveh that God will bless. So God isn't changing. God is doing exactly what God said God would do in the face of a changed situation. And in Nineveh's case, what's, what's changed them? Well, it seems like it's been this three-day journey of death and resurrection that the prophet goes through and then the city goes through. Nineveh ritually offers herself up in sackcloth and ashes, and God acts entirely in accordance with his promise. When a people, when a nation repents, God says, I will, I will show mercy to them. And so what we see in Jonah 3.10 is not the human-like relenting of a fickle, changeable man, but the divine relenting of an unchangeably merciful God, the God of grace, the God of forgiveness, the God of second chances, both for rebellious prophets and for repentant nations. And for us, that's good news. When we disobey, when we sin, God pursues us in order to turn us away from our sin back to himself. And when we turn, then God's anger turns as well. This is true no matter who you are. No matter what you've done, whether violence like Nineveh or rebelliously refusing to speak for God like Jonah. We are all sinners in desperate need of God's mercy, and God always has mercy for sinners. This is the good news. So if you've not yet repented, or if you've begun repenting but have not pressed on to completion, 
so that you don't have peace with God. Now is the time. Today is the day. Don't wait to repent. Come to God. Seek his mercy because there is mercy for you. And if you need to talk to a pastor, to an elder, your shepherds are eager to lead you to the mercy of God. But even if, by God's grace, you haven't done the horrible things that Nineveh did, I want us to consider this. God urges us to take the gospel to the nations, and to do that, we have to take the gospel at least to our neighbors. Have you run from that call? I know that I have. I'm good at making excuses. I'm good at sleeping in the boat like Jonah. And so it's good news that Jesus gives stubborn sinners a second chance. God is calling you again. God renews his call. He gives you another opportunity. And this morning, you're hearing God's word. This is that opportunity. Prepare your heart to obey the call of God. Is there a name? Someone who comes to mind or a situation in which you felt prompted by God to speak for Jesus, to share the gospel, to tell the truth, but you ran away. You were silent. You didn't speak up. God, this morning in his word, is telling you, arise and go. And so the question is, are you running from God's call? Or are you praying and looking for chances to obey? Today is a day of recommissioning for us, just like it was for Jonah. God renews us here in worship. And at the end of the service, God sends us out to be his witnesses. And so maybe it would do your soul good this afternoon to spend some time in prayer. Think of those names, those situations, those places, those people where God is calling you to speak. Maybe at work, maybe in your extended family. Start praying that you'll be ready next time the opportunity comes to rise up and go. One final thought. Nineveh's immediate wholehearted repentance is a standing rebuke to Jonah's stubbornness and through Jonah to the people of Israel, who at this point in their history, despite all the prophets that have gone to them, are refusing to repent. God's own people are stubborn. It's the pagans who are quick to repent. And this is to the shame of God's people. But as I mentioned before, there is an atonement-sized, maybe a Jesus-shaped hole in the book of Jonah. There's an abundance of mercy, but there is not an answer to the question, on what basis does God show mercy? Why is this mercy that God gives to Nineveh not unjust, especially to Nineveh's many victims? They get skinned alive. They get impaled, all the while crying out for mercy. And for them, it doesn't come. But God shows mercy to Nineveh without demanding any bloodshed, not even animal sacrifice. And so in the next chapter, Jonah is going to ask the question, where is justice? And the Old Testament answer is, God will provide a lamb. That is animal sacrifice 
is God's means and picture of justice, which is missing from the book of Jonah. But it may be that Jonah chapter 3 is a preview of the New Testament answer, that when God extends his mercy to the nations, he doesn't ultimately want the blood of bulls and goats. Abraham knew that. David knew that. Jonah loses sight of that in his anger. But when Nineveh believes God's word and calls out for his mercy, and when they receive mercy apart from animal sacrifice, it, it shows us that animal sacrifice at the temple is not ultimately essential to the mercy of God. And for us today, we know the name of God's word, of God's mercy. And so when the question comes to us, where's justice? We proclaim the good news that God's justice was fully satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where justice and mercy meet. Because of the shed blood of Jesus, God's mercy is available to all who call on the name of Jesus in faith. We see that clearly in the gospel. And because a greater prophet than Jonah has come, which means that if Nineveh repented, how much more ought we to repent? The cross is where justice and mercy meet. And God has promised to forgive and spare everyone who turns away from evil and comes to God in repentance, putting their faith in Jesus. So let us thank God that we too have been overthrown by God's great mercy in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what more can we do than to marvel at your mercy? We give you thanks and praise that you made a way, a way of atonement through the blood of Jesus Christ that sinners might be redeemed and saved. We thank you that not only do you make a way of mercy, but that in your kindness you send the gospel message to awaken us to our need for mercy and bring us to that place of repentance. Father, we thank you for that moment in our lives when we were moved first to repent. We thank you for that repentance that you renew in us day by day, week by week. And Father, we pray that as those who have tasted and known your mercy, that we would be those who share your mercy with others, who announce the message that there is mercy to be found in Jesus Christ. Prepare us for that good work by giving us joy this day as we meditate on the mercy of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.